Well, Dan, I'm always happy to provide some policy paprika uh, <laughs> to your <laughs> to your podcast, Chili. Well, look at that. This is our last episode before polls close for election 2020. So next time I'll be talking with you, I assume we'll have at least some news about what the next four years look like. We know it's going to be a wild ride, but I'd avoid speculating on anything more than that. But there's one thing I do know for certain, and that's that whatever happens in healthcare over the next four years, Medicaid is going to play a critical role. We've talked about Medicaid a lot on this show, and for good reason. Medicaid funds the prenatal delivery and postnatal coverage for more than 50% of kids in Ohio. It's a critical program for the poor, the disabled, and people in a host of other categories, including those dealing with an addiction, which makes it literally a lifeline. This reminds us of what former Governor John Kasich said when he went around his party to expand Medicaid, namely that Medicaid is a matter of life and death. Though as a gubernatorial candidate, Mike DeWine was originally a bit vague on where he stood on Medicaid, he had something of a come-to-Jesus moment in the last months of the 2018 election, and he said he wouldn't seek to undo the Medicaid expansion after all if he was elected. It turns out when people look past the sometimes ugly politics of Medicaid and the misinformation, they usually can't deny its importance, and that's as true today as it has ever been. The only question is how to manage Ohio's Medicaid program. John Kasich may have proclaimed himself a Medicaid reformer, but it's Governor Mike DeWine and the Department of Medicaid that has picked up this mantle in a big way. That's what we're going to be talking about today. This is Prognosis Ohio, an Ohio health and healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. Hey folks, and welcome back. I hope that some of you have had a chance to check out the live show we did on Facebook last week, which featured a great discussion on reproductive politics in Ohio and an election 2020 spotlight with David Pepper from the Ohio Democratic Party and eight candidates with strong health policy platforms who are running this year. The video is archived and available for viewing on Facebook. On Facebook, we're Prognosis Ohio Pod, by the way. The experience had me thinking a lot about what a show like this can or should do. I'm still not 100% sure, but I do know that we're inundated with news about issues that intersect with health. And I know that it probably isn't the greatest idea to just add more intensity to our current events in health and healthcare. So for now, as I devote what time I can to the show, I'm going to be focusing on improving the quality of the podcast, which will go back to every other week now to allow me to do that, but also to do a few more Facebook Live and other interim segments to be able to react to new developments. I'd love to hear from you if you have ideas. I admit that the one-two punch of the pandemic and the election has really pushed me to some of my own personal limits on this work, and I want to make sure that the focus is on quality and not quantity. So Mark and I are going to be putting some real effort into bringing you thoughtful, timely, and also interesting episodes on issues that you may not be fully aware of. For example, I'm planning on doing an episode or two on themes related to Men's Health Month in November, but I'm also hoping to get a bit deeper into some issues in child health and the ongoing challenges we have here in Ohio with our schools, vaccines, and related issues. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss those. Our guest, Lauren Anthes, is well-known to longtime Prognosis Ohio listeners. He serves as the William C. and Elizabeth M. Troyhoff Chair in Health Planning at the Center for Community Solutions and leads Community Solutions Center for Medicaid Policy. Anthes has significant public and private sector experience, and he's worked extensively both with the legislative and executive branches of local, state, and federal government. Lauren holds board and committee positions with a bunch of different organizations, and he's also a lecturer at Ohio University's College of Osteopathic Medicine, specializing in quality improvement in health system science. 
Anthes holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from OU and a Healthcare Master of Business Administration from Baldwin Wallace University. Hey, Lauren, it's great to have you back on the show to talk about these uh, recent developments with Medicaid. It is great to be back, Dan. Always great to be back, right? Always great to be back, of course. So my understanding, and you know, I uh, teach health policy, I read a lot of health policy, but you are more than anybody I know, always deep in the weeds of Medicaid specifically. Okay. So um, glad to have you kind of unpack a little bit of what's going on in Ohio. We all know, I mean, the Medicaid program in Ohio, like Medicaid programs in many states, um, you know, covers millions of people. Um, critical program to our state. We've talked about it on this show many times, several times with you. Mm-hmm. But my understanding is that that the, the overhauls and, and the, the rethinking of Medicaid that's going on right now is probably the biggest development with Ohio Medicaid in more than a decade, if not longer. Do I have that basically right? You are absolutely right. Um, managed care is the predominant way that we deliver services in the Medicaid program. And so whatever we establish with these companies in terms of delivering a benefit um, is the policy expression of the state. So what's the big deal here? What, and, and let's you know try to be as unwonky as possible, uh, or at least explain a few terms like managed care and all of that. Can we take a step back and kind of talk about how Ohio has been doing Medicaid, and then we can work our way to what's going on now and why all this is happening? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good idea. So, um, you know, managed care has been around a really long time, but let me just sort of describe what fee for service is. Um, so, typically, you know, when we talk about paying for healthcare uh, through the Medicaid program, what we usually mean is, you know, or at least what people think about um, when you talk about Medicaid is fee for service. The idea that every time a doctor delivers a service, that they get paid for it. It is what it sounds like, fee for service. Managed care is a renegotiation of that relationship. And essentially what the state does is it puts out a contract to private insurance companies and says, hey, uh, we want to get better value out of our program. We just don't want to pay every time a service is delivered. Uh, We would like to work with you all so that you can do a better job of achieving that value, getting better outcomes, controlling costs, all that sort of stuff. Because, you know, economically speaking, if I paid you for whatever the work was, um, then you're going to do more expensive work, right? Um, Right. Which doesn't necessarily help because how we pay for things in healthcare, we usually pay better for the things that are uh, more related to disease than wellness. So sometimes this is also referred to as a kind of moral hazard that there are actually these perverse incentives to do more testing, even if it's not going to necessarily result in healthier patients. Exactly. Um, You know, why we have more heart hospitals than we have uh, people with controlled uh, hypertension for example. Um, So, you know, what what the state's saying is like, listen, we're going to, we're going to take the money we would have spent directly. We're going to give it to these private insurance companies and these insurance companies can leverage um, different abilities that are afforded to them by us and by the federal government to do innovative stuff. And that includes utilization management tools like prior authorization. The idea that, you know, if a drug gets prescribed, 
Is there some cheaper, less expensive alternative? If there's some therapy that's offered, is there a, a different, uh, less expensive physician in the network that may be able to deliver uh, those services? Uh, managed care can also hire nurses, social workers, community health workers, and others. You know, so you don't have you know just the state operating in the Lazarus Building processing claims. You have these insurance companies who can actually go out and coordinate things and help case manage. And then you put them in a competitive landscape. Um, so you're trying to leverage the marketplace right. um, and say, okay, we're not just going to bid this out to one plan. We're going to bid it out to several. And whoever's doing better in this scheme, we're going to give more money uh, to them. And who's ever doing worse, um, we're going to take away money. And so, you know, you're trying to essentially do what you do in the you know, with government purchasing generally, you're trying to trying to create an environment where it's competitive and where you can monitor and track the performance of these companies. And in exchange, the money that they don't spend, uh, they get to keep up to a certain amount and there's incentives built in. And really, it's just like any other con uh, contractor relationship. And essentially what's happening now, which is pretty typical if we're being honest about it, you know, you, they, we go through these cycles of contracting for these sorts of things. Uh, the state is saying, we, we just want to rebase. We want to, we want a new foundation to this relationship. And, and this is, you know, where we think we want to take it and we want to do X, Y, and Z. So let me ask you, you know, just, I guess this is really an opinion question more than anything before we move on, uh -huh. which is, do you, do you like this model? I mean, do you like this idea of managed care? And, you know, it's, it's obviously a departure from what we were talking about when Medicaid was established in 1965. Like this right. is a major development over the last few decades, but, you know, as somebody who tracks this stuff, do you have an opinion on, I mean, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what you think in a way. Nobody's going to say, oh, Lauren Anthes doesn't like managed care, so we're going to go the other way. Yeah. But like, what's your your take on, uh, you know, just whether the model itself is a good one? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think what you said is probably the most representative of my feelings, which is it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> um, I would say that, you know, it's better than fee-for-service, and it really depends on what the contract says, what this basic relationship between the state and these private companies says. There are there are states that do this really, really well. California has had managed care plans for a very long time and has very aggressively pursued value and has largely been able to achieve it. Ohio's, you know, made progress in a lot of ways, um, getting towards value, but in a lot of ways is a significant laggard. So, you know, to me, um, you know, there's this issue of, I don't think, um, I don't think it's necessarily the best thing possible. Um, but you know, policy is often not the best thing possible. And if we're going to, you know, try to move away from fee for service, which I definitely think is a good idea, then changing the contract has to be a regular part of this conversation, because that's something that you can, you know, mold and change and evolve over time. And that's a, a pretty good idea. So when uh, the governor announced these major changes, or at least this, um, you know, interest in starting down a path, he said, this is a process, but uh, we begin that process today. So mm -hmm. what is the process? Uh, tell us a little bit about what some of the pieces of rethinking are. Yeah. So, you know, when we say procurement, what we're saying is, you know, the state's putting out a contract to bid. And here's the thing I'd like to highlight. You know, this is really not just one piece, but five different 
contracts that the state is trying to go for around pharmacy benefit management, around claims payment, around uh, credentialing of providers. And the thing that was announced was really what I'm calling like the main procurement. So the main benefits that get managed by uh, managed care plans. And the, th- the thing I'd also like to highlight is, you know, even though the governor quote unquote announced it, this has been a process that's been going on for about two years, ever since they got in into office, you know, the director and the department, and even before then, the Kasich administration was sort of signaling, we're going to re-procure, we're going to re-procure, which is, you know, for wonks like me, not surprising. This is usually, we re-procure contracts like this nationally every like three to six years. And so it's been a decent amount of time. Um, But after their process where they went out to the public, they collected feedback, they, you know, did a request for information, all stuff, by the way, they they aren't required to do with something like this. Mm -hmm. Um, They announced this main uh, procurement. And so what's happening right now is they're getting various companies to say that they are interested. They're asking for, you know, letters of intent. And then from there, there'll be more formal application processes in place um, over the next few months. Uh, then awards will be uh, announced and discussed. And then the idea is that this gets into place by the beginning of the next fiscal year, which is July 1 of 2021. So what are the pieces here? What, what, what are the kind of values that the state is now laying out saying, we're doing this re-procurement, but this is why? Like, what's different about this call? Hmm. I, I think this is a really, really important point. Um, so let's talk about the current state of affairs, okay? Um, since we last procured, these managed care plans in Ohio currently have been stewards of over $86 billion, Okay. Now, a lot of that's federal dollars and, you know, uh, some state dollars, but they've been managing these resources. And so the question is, what's the bang for our buck here? Um, And if you look at any of the reports that are required in regards to quality, in regards to payment, in regards to consumer uh, feedback about the program, uh, Ohio does you know, it's, it's pretty middling to be honest with you. It's like average to mediocre. Uh, I mean, isn't that true with most things with Ohio with health and healthcare though? I mean, mm-hmm. in a way that's the problem of our state, right? We have these fantastic healthcare institutions, but we keep coming up uh, toward the low end or the middle of just about everything. Yeah. And I, I think this is a recognition of that because, you know, Medicaid is a big part of it. it Medicaid serves one in three Ohioans right now. It serves most mostly children in particular. Um, So I think that this procurement represents, you know, a big swing at trying to impact some of those numbers, particularly for kids. We are such underperformers when it comes to kids' health, um, particularly the basic developmental screenings that kids are supposed to receive. We do not do a good job, which is actually a litigation risk for the state. Um, Mm. So, you know, we talk about health check or well child visits or EPSDT for any nerds out there. Um, Ohio does not do well. We don't do well on, um, you know, children being able to access uh, dental appointments. We don't do well on just general screenings. I know here in Cleveland, um, it's been a big challenge with uh, lead screening and testing. So, you know, part of what the contract is trying to do is sort of renegotiate that and put more of this money on the line for these insurance companies to say, no, 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 business as usual isn't going to work. We're falling behind in a number of areas around chronic diseases, around children's healthcare in particular. We want to be more than mediocre, um, which I think is a laudable goal. Now, the devil's in the details and you can make the best plan on paper. 
Um, but, you know, I would say to anybody who's out there, you know, when you talk about what's in people's wallets, um, you know, people tend to react when you try to try to adjust or augment or change what's inside of them. So what's the response from industry? I mean, I've talked with managed care company representatives and mm-hmm. such, and they usually talk about what a great job they do and how great their plans are. But there's this kind of reckoning that happens where you say, well, or you realize that, okay, you may have great physicians, you may have great hospitals, you may have great, what you call great care, but if the outcomes aren't there, then who cares, <laughs> literally, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, what's the response been to this kind of tough talk about we need to do better you know um i think i've said this before <laughs> when we've talked but it it depends dan um depending on who you're talking to right listen um, you can't do that on this show okay? <laughs> the, you, 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 you're the hot takes guy not the it depends guy oh yeah that's right no no lukewarm uh room temperature takes uh, no baby right. no baby bear takes um yeah i think uh you know some plans in the state currently operating stand to lose a lot of money and so I imagine that there's going to be a reaction from them. Some plans that don't operate in the state of Ohio may be interested in Ohio's market because it is a lot of money. We talked about $86 billion you know, worth of uh, revenue that flows through uh, these contractors. Uh, some may be interested in that business. You know, I, I saw something really weird, which is soon after you know, this whole thing was announced, this like ghost Twitter account called Medicaid Lives Matter, which only followed basically insurance companies, started to say like, this is going to be disruptive. And I, I find that highly specious. Um, because It's also pretty gross just in terms of its appropriation of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I, I don't like it. I think it's, it's, um, it's a perversion of what is a broader longitudinal social movement on behalf of a private company trying to retain market share or some consultant who's advising that company or series of companies that it's a good idea, which um, I hope this consultant or whomever is listening, it is not. And you should move away from that messaging at least. Um, We can deliberate. We can have a very serious adult conversation around managed care, what should be in the contract, what is workable, how does interoperability happen, all the nerdy stuff that we can get into that serious people get into. But to politicize something like that in the in the vein of we're just trying to you know make sure we're protecting consumers is a gross misrepresentation of what this process actually represents, which in my estimation, after actually reading the 300 page plus document, is very different than what's being uh, put forward. But you know, to, to your original question of like, how do they feel about it? I, I think that there's probably different reactions that you're going to get. I, I'm interested to see what the letters of intent say. Uh, I imagine there's going to be a lot of interest. And here's the other thing. Since when do we think competition is bad? Since when do we think it's not a good idea to open up the marketplace and let people do a better job who are stewarding these taxpayer resources? I would challenge anyone who's receptive to the quote-unquote disruption argument to say, let's look back at how we think about policy in this state and recent efforts policy-wise in the state for private companies that, let's say, operate utilities in Ohio, and then ask ourselves the question, can we get a better deal? when we are making accommodations and regulation. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I guess we're going to find out um, the difference between the things we claim to support and the things we actually are willing to do mm-hmm. um, to invest in. And uh, my, my sense is that this is going to, I mean, from a very basic perspective, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that there's going to be more competition in a place where 
maybe that wasn't the case before. And obviously, there are going to be winners and losers. Uh, some of the big names that we know in Medicaid, there's going to be more of those names, presumably. Yeah, good. Good. And l- let me just like cite some stats, you know, for, for you and for your listeners here, right? So for kids, only half are getting their entitled, right? They're legally medically necessary well-child visits. Less than two and three kids get vaccinations. Less than half make their annual dental appointments. Only- oh, and by the way, all of this has a big, big asterisk with COVID, right? Just sitting there and we're really worried about how, how much deferral of basic preventive healthcare there has been over the last eight months. Oh, sure. But th- these are, this is data from before COVID. So this is the No, most- that's what I mean. Yeah, I, I, yeah exactly. What, what I'm <laughs> saying is that, you know, it, it, it's probably gotten worse and um, that's oh, something to be worried about. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely gotten worse. I mean, you know, as people are avoiding medically necessary visits or even let's say telehealth has been made more accessible, which it has. And the state, should be uh, congratulated for its, you know, expansion of it. You know, it's not accessible in all places. We know that broadband access in rural communities and in um, in certain parts of urban communities is not a regularly available thing. So, you know, and there's not all all services are not created equal. Getting medication assisted therapies for substance use disorder for things like heroin addiction is not something you can easily try to accomplish over a cell phone, right? Or, or dental care for Ex- that matter. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so we've been underperforming for a really long time. We've been underperforming particularly with kids, women in behavioral health, chronic diseases, our blood pressure control numbers are bad, our diabetes numbers are bad. Um, Our quality metrics, you know, the state issues these report cards on managed care organizations and, you know, they seem to be okay, but they usually only represent comparison within the state. If you look at any of the measures in these lengthy quality reviews conducted by independent parties, we tend to do pretty poor relative to other managed care companies in the country. And there's three standards in particular where we're in the lowest percentile for three measures. So there's multiple concurrent antipsychotics for kids. We give more antipsychotics for kids than we should more uh, than the average, like way worse <laughs> than mm-hmm. other places, poor diabetes control for adults and uh, poor measurements for just general well care visits for uh, adults, particularly around boss mat, um, uh, mass body index stuff. So right. we can do better. Um, we should expect better. These things will save money if you do them appropriately. And I think that this is the attempt by the Ohio Department of Medicaid to say, okay, let's try to do better. And I would say anybody who's fighting against that is probably nervous that they haven't been doing a good enough job. So recently when I had you on the show, uh, we talked about, or I, I floated the kind of budget discussion that always comes up around Medicaid. Medicaid is a big chunk of the the state budget, um, but you know, it's a safety net in our state as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's something that we should be happy to pay for. It's my understanding that these developments also have potentially uh, very big budget impacts for the state as well. Can you tell me how that's playing out? I mean, we know that Governor DeWine, I mean, he came into office I, a lot of people, even people who were not excited about uh, his election, mm-hmm. um, no, took note that he was making child health um, a priority and talked about it a lot. And it seemed to be really important to him. But also, he's a conservative um, who uh, has a, a particular 
view on budgets, right? So how, how do those pieces figure into this conversation? Yeah, I mean, um, so in a couple ways, I think that there's like technical accounting like stuff that matters with all of this when it comes to timing. Um, when and how do these contracts get implemented? How does that affect like the timing of things like pharmacy rebates, so on and so forth. And, you know, those those issues will obviously have impacts in how the, um, the budget plays out. I think the other part to this, though, is really about the ways in which this kind of contract can cost control. Um, you know, if you put more money on the line to achieve quality, you are essentially doing one of two things. Either you're not going to pay out as much as you would have because things are not being achieved, or if things are achieved, they ultimately bend the cost curve, right? So if you are controlling diabetes, if you're controlling hypertension, then it means you're not ending up in an acute situation, which is more expensive. So I think that, you know, longer term, this whole piece is really about controlling costs. And that's kind of the idea here. And I, you know, I can't think of anything more conservative, honestly, than trying to contract out government services to private organizations to see them try to um, leverage the incentive of not spending in order to achieve better contractual outcomes. I mean, managed care <laughs> in and of itself is a byproduct of conservative politics in healthcare generally. It's kind of the thing you point to as a conservative politician. So, uh, you know, I would be perplexed to see um, there be any sort of lack of support or you know, promotion of stuff like fee for service or a state run program. <laughs> Cause you know, the alternative is that the Ohio department of Medicaid pay these benefits out directly as government. So I couldn't see why this wouldn't be something that makes sense for a lot of folks. We've had it in our state for more than a few decades. And quite frankly, this idea of intensifying the marketplace through greater competition and greater ownership over the results seems to be pretty much in line with a lot of the conservative principles that many people who pay attention to this program would want to see. Yes, certainly in 2016, when uh, Trump was running for president, you know, he talked in these terms and that's because, you know, that's how Paul Ryan's been talking about these kinds of things for for a long time as well. And many other conservatives who talk about markets as a, a solution to things. So yeah. I guess we'll see with this, but when you, when you, um, you do your kind of broad assessment on it, I mean, the budgetary piece, as opposed to the health outcomes piece, is it 50, 50, is this actually mainly about the budgetary aspects or do you think this is a really principled model or could be a principled model that could actually help us with those health outcomes that you unpacked a little bit? Yeah, I, I think it's more like a synapse than not. I think these things are connected. I will say this, though, there is an overt, um, strong renegotiation of this agreement towards population health. Um, it's it's pretty overt. And the things that they're trying to do in this contract, to me, are really, really creative. Uh, they turn on these ICD-10 billing codes called Z codes, which are ways of documenting um, social determinants. They call out the need um, for greater integration with community-based organizations, which is something you know I've been talking about for years. Is something the state needs to do, and I'm really happy to see that they, they finally listen to you. <laughs> I think they finally listen to nearly every other state that does this and does it more efficiently than us. <laughs> um, and you know, there's there's other things in here too that also matter. Um, you know, there's a new position created, a health equity director, and there's elements to um, what's required of them in terms of 
um, building in training around implicit bias and making sure that trauma-informed care is a part of their thought process. Um, it's just, you know, the design of this to me is really, it's in some ways forward thinking, mm -hmm. but in other ways, it just looks to other states that are more successful than us and says, you know, let's borrow from their good example and do managed care better in Ohio. So, you know, to me, um, that population health focus is certainly earnest. I think it reflects a lot of what was provided in the request for information sort of consumer gathering process, particularly like simplifying credentialing for physicians, simplifying the claims process. All the business administration stuff seems to be much more clean and uh, simple than it used to be, which is going to save money down the road. But also this population health element and like they even have educational um, outcomes and milestones built into the value-based payment. So, so stuff like th the third grade reading guarantee is stuff that's going to be measured. That yeah. kind of integration is really smart. It's really like uh, intentional. And, you know, I think it's, it's a very positive sort of development and all these things too will lead to costs being reduced down the road. Because if, if, you know, kids are healthier and they're doing better in school, we know that the downstream impacts there in terms of behavioral health, in terms of physical health are just, are obvious. So, I think it's a long-term foundational investment. Um, you know, everything is all about how you implement it, but, you know, it definitely from a, from a, you know, piece of paper sort of point of view, it does a lot uh, to, to responding to consumer needs, to responding to some of the best practices from a policy standpoint. So in, you know, one part of your life, um, you know, you, you work with community solutions, but you also, you and I also work with medical students at Ohio University. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was thinking as you were talking, because, you know, we hear a lot early on medical students and many physicians, um, you know, are kind of pumped with a lot of negative sentiment around Medicaid, even though they have to concede to what a, a lifesaver it is, the safety net part of Medicaid, and where would we be without it, especially with kids. Um, if you were to look at this from the perspective of uh, medical students, other health profession students coming up who may have received some of this, oh, Medicaid, Medicaid uh, kind of message, the, ne the negative side of things, what does this offer for them? Because I'm hearing a lot of hope in what you're talking about. You used a few words like streamlining or, you know, cleaner, simplifying. I mean, there's this sounds to me like almost a kind of bureaucratic side to what the state is going to be looking at that, that could, I think, um, excite some people who may have uh, some stigma regarding Medicaid. Yeah. You know, so what we talk about in our program is health systems, right? And systems thinking, and what that means, you know, to me is you can't see um, persons who are receiving care or um, their coverage sources or the bureaucratic sort of operational side of things as being um, separate, right? They, they're all interconnected. And I think that with Medicaid, you know, some of the stigma there um, probably goes to, has more cultural realities than anything else, because really, you know, a lot of these, the, a lot of the way that Medicaid works is the same as 
private insurance, to be frank. It's just maybe the payment isn't satisfactory to some folks in revenue cycle, which is a different issue. Um, Or even individual assumptions that maybe physicians or others may have around, um, you know, uh, people who are in poverty and and their relationship to their care and and that sort of thing. Um, here, here's what I will say about you know what what does change and and why this might be meaningful um, across the board. If you have like you know physicians who may have very good feelings about Medicaid and its role in society and the importance of coverage, um, the thing that every physician can talk about is just how complex everything is, how the data isn't always linked appropriately, how uh, prior authorizations are really annoying to try to deal with, how credentialing is uh, duplicative and confusing and so on and so forth. A lot of what is represented here, at least in Medicaid, may end up making Medicaid much more easy to work with than a lot of other parts of our delivery system. In particular, one thing that's here, and this is like a little bit in the weeds, right? You know, it mandates that these plans provide their data to the state's health information exchanges. And that is huge, huge, huge. We We have segregated systems of data. Where, you know, the hospital has its data, it has its, you know, um, clinical outcome information, so on and so forth. But it can't pull out any information from plans or payers or other providers to provide better insights for physicians on where is this person in terms of their care continuum, in terms of the other social needs being addressed or not, so on and so forth. Plans may have a lot of those things. They may know if someone goes to Cleveland Clinic, Metro, an FQHC, or even a food bank, but they don't necessarily feed into that system. And so by mandating all these things get linked, by mandating that there's better continuity in the data between a plan, a provider, a community-based organization like a food pantry, now you have the intelligence that that physicians need to more appropriately deliver the right medicine. And I think that that is significant because, you know, the one thing I'll talk about with our students, they're always like, we don't know enough about what's going on in their lives. We don't have enough information. We, we are always correcting records or going back or refilling things out. So if you create a better process to where things just work, the tools are there, well, then you're actually getting into more effective clinical care. Um, and so that de-siloing of the self-interest of these payers and providers and others around their data and creating a better like um, ability and, and mandate to coordinate and collaborate, I think is just significant. And, and at least for our students who are family med docs, so basically they have to deal with everything. Yeah. Um, that's going to be really huge for them because they're going to they're going to be able to have better relationships, more meaningful relationships, and better clinical insights when they try to deliver the medicine they're trained to deliver. Right, and we've been having this conversation about uh, portability and and moving data around and electronic medical records for decades now. Decades, and yeah. um, hopefully this can be you know, uh, a swing for the fences with that one, because man, I, I have to say, I mean, I, not only do I have an appreciation for how important it is, um, as a patient, right. Mm-hmm. But also I'm just sick of hearing about it. Like yes. we, we've known about this problem for so long. I know that's not the most sophisticated thing to say about it, but it's true. Let's just, let's, let's do this. Dan, let me, uh, I'm going to use a really like, um, you know, this is uh, kind of a wonkish sort of way to view it. It sucks. The system sucks. And the reason the system sucks is because there's no need to collaborate. The money to be made is is made in fragmentation. The money to be made is in the inefficiency 
of our delivery system, right? It's so the way you make money in our healthcare system is when people are sick. It's when they have a disease. It's when they need a surgery. It's not the upstream part of that. And so if you can just reorient the entire incentive system away from that and say, no, 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 you're going to share information. You're only going to get paid when you coordinate. You're only going to get paid when you collaborate with your doula program, not only talking to the OB around a a high-risk pregnancy. Well, then you got something. And so, you know, again, we'll see how it works because this is complicated stuff. This is a big ship, but it ain't working now. So, you know, you might as well try to do something that leverages what we do know that works and expect more from these private companies taking billions and billions and billions in taxpayer money. I got to say, I mean, uh, the system sucks, but we're fixing it is is not the worst DeWine 2022 campaign slogan I can think of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like, you know, hey, uh, we're trying, which is, right. you know, if... At least 2020, that's good enough for me, um, <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit more than that, you know, but it's, it's certainly, I mean, especially because this is, this has been, I, I have to give credit where credit is due. You know, the fact that they went out and asked for people's opinions and had those opinions reflected in what they put forward. Uh, from a consumer standpoint is like, yeah. they don't have to do that. They don't have to do that. The state could just offer whatever they want. It could be really boring contractual cycle. People would sue, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that they are going about it this way, I think matters. Um, now, if it works is a different type of question. Um, but I'll tell you what, personally speaking, it, it hasn't worked. I've written about how it hasn't worked. We should We should be able to get more. Great. Well, Lauren, thanks for you know unpacking uh, at least part of this really important development. And I know we're going to be continuing to follow it as we go. Uh, Medicaid, I, I've learned, um, is just, I mean, its complexity matches its importance in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And um, it's always good to have somebody who can talk about it um, in, 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 in plain speak, um, but also, you know, add some spicy uh, commentary along the way. So I, I always look forward to talking with you and um, we'll do it again soon. Well, Dan, I'm always happy to provide some policy paprika uh, <laughs> to your <laughs> to your podcast, Chili. So, yeah, anytime, man. OK, thanks. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner and Mark France. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show, follow us on Twitter at, at @prognosisohio, friend us on Facebook, and check out our new website at prognosisohio.com. As always, we encourage you to reach out via email or social media with your suggestions and your feedback. Remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss it. Oh, and I got my flu shot. Did you? Be well. <laughs>